And we are back. Happy Truck and Hustle Tuesday, y'all. What's good? Welcome to the show. First and foremost, I want to give a shout out to all the fathers out there. Happy belated Father's Day. Salute to y'all. I hope y'all had a dope, dope, wonderful, relaxing weekend. But now it's back to the grind. Um, listen, today we have a really, really dope show for you lined up. I got my brother Christopher Senegal, a.k.a. Investor. We're going to talk about real estate investing. We're going to talk about real estate developing. Um, really, really dope story. Chris has recently garnered a lot of attention with his Buy the Block initiative, where he's actually revitalizing a community in Houston's Fifth Ward. The dope thing about this project is it's actually an opportunity for everyday people to invest and have an ownership stake. Um, so if that's something that you're interested in, make sure y'all check out buytheblock.com. I believe there's uh, there's nine days left to invest in that. So, you know, this podcast is really timely. If that's something you're interested in, you could check that out. Um, tell them Truck and Hustle sent you. All right. Um, as far as the podcast, man, we talk about Chris's journey. He started out flipping houses, would then, you know, make a really, really, really gutsy move and get into real estate developing. And we kind of talk about that talk about the differences, the pros, the cons, and all that good stuff. So, you know, I just wanted to touch on something, you know, a little bit different today. Um, you know, with everything that's going on in our country, man, it's so important that we stay well-versed and uh, financially literate, and we just understand the different things that are going on around us, and we understand the opportunities that are out there for us. All right, so um, I thought this would be a dope show. All right, so listen, y'all, um, as always, you know what time it is, right? Put your ears on, and if you smell something burning, it's only your desire. Let's go. What's up, y'all? This is Ramel Watley, and welcome to Truck and Hustle, the podcast for trucking entrepreneurs. If you want to learn about the trucking industry from the business side of things, you're in the right place. Every week, I interview the people who are making it happen on a daily basis. I get them to share their successes, their failures, and sometimes even their secrets. The goal is to show you how you too can create financial freedom in the booming trucking industry. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. No matter where you're trying to go, just remember that you got to have the success triangle. Three parts of the triangle. Uh, number one is you got to have somebody with the knowledge. Um, you got to have somebody with the money. And you got to have somebody with the opportunity. So figure out where you fit in. If you have the money, make sure you go out and find the knowledge um, or, or the opportunity um, and bring that, that third piece together. Turn my mic up. For you. Take this. Yeah, yeah, uh. On the road to the riches. Life takes a toll like bridges. Good friends become foes and snitches. Better watch who knows in your business. Hi, Hustle Fam. Listen, y'all, I have a special treat for y'all today. Um, a little bit, a little, little different than we normally do. Um, you know, with everything going on right now in the country. Um, I think everybody sees how important it is to have, um, you know, multiple streams of income, right? You know, we, we need to start learning how to invest our money and, um, you know, make, make our money work for us. So I brought a special guest um, on the show today, uh, my man, Christopher Senegal, um, a.k.a. Yeah. Investor. What's up, man? Welcome, welcome to the show, my brother. What's going on, man? What's going on? I appreciate you having me on here, man. Oh, man. Thank you so much for, for, for being here, man. Um, so for people, for people who don't know, um, Christopher, um, he is a brother who started out flipping houses, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and now he's buying back the block, right? He's buying back the block. Um, yeah. so we're, we're going to talk about investing today, you know, and, 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 you know, everybody in the industry, 
We got to, you know, figure out ways to do things with our money to help it grow and, and help it help mm-hmm. us. Right. So um, I wanted to bring somebody on the show who, who could help us out with that. So what's going on, man? How are you today? Man, I'm great. I'm great, brother. I mean, you know, uh, fighting through this, this turmoil that everybody else is dealing with, but, you know, making it work. Got you. Got you. All right. So let's start from the beginning, man. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself for the people who don't know you. Let's kind of get into mm-hmm. your backstory and, um, you know, let's lead up to how you got into the investing world. Cool, man. So Christopher Senegal, I'm from um, Southeast Texas, Southwest, Southwest Louisiana area. I was born in Lake Charles, grew up in Port Arthur, Texas. Shout out to UGK. Um, went to college for uh, civil engineering at a Southern University in Baton Rouge. And, uh, you know, I was actually a teenage dad, man. I had my son when I was barely 16. So I had to have a lot of responsibility early on. And I uh, went to college for engineering, got out and did the corporate thing for the first year, man. And, and it, immediately I knew this wasn't for me. You know, I felt like I was just sold that dream of, you know, get that degree, doctor, lawyer, engineer, and you'll be set for life. And I got out there and I just realized it ain't what it's cracked up to be. Um, you can't excel like you want to. Somebody else is making a decision about, you know, when you wake up, when you go to sleep, how long you can take vacation, how many days you can be sick, you know, and when you get a promotion, you know. So for me, it was like from there, I was like, man, I got to get out. I got to figure it out. So so when I started getting into reading books about business and investing, I didn't know anything about it, you know, because I thought everybody that was in business worked at a bank. I had no idea. But, you know, that um, that catalyst was that first year on that corporate job for me to get into uh, figuring out how to create other insor- other sources of income. Okay. Okay, cool. So, so, so basically you realized that corporate America wasn't really for you, that that wasn't the path yeah. that you wanted to go down and you realized that you had to kind of um, educate yourself um, mm-hmm. in order to, um, to be successful. Right. Right. So, so, mm-hmm. so you got into real estate, you got into investing mm-hmm. in real estate. Talk to me about mm-hmm. the initial um, stages of that. What, what did you do? I mean, what books did you read to, to start educating yourself? Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Man, the first book I read is uh, the book I still recommend to everybody to this day is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Okay. And it, it, it really just, it, it, that's the book that sets the foundation for the mindset. And it's in layman's terms where you understand that academics and degrees don't really correlate or translate to uh, wealth building. Um, because the, the, the premise of that book was the guy that had the eighth grade education left his kids millions and the guy with all degrees didn't leave his kid anything. Um and so that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then uh, Think and Grow Rich is another book I read. Um, well, surprisingly, none of these books are specifically solely real estate focused. Okay. Um, but but uh, what I did realize is that real estate was the 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 most impactful, the most significant way that first generation wealth was made. Is about eighty percent of the people that were first generation millionaires did it through ownership of real estate, or that was some significant part of their investment strategy. So um, that's what made me want to focus on it, man. And actually, when I, I, I quit my first corporate job and I moved back to Texas, I couldn't sell my house because it was 2008. Okay. So I had to rent, so I had to rent it out. So um, And I rented it out, not thinking about making it an investment, but just out of frustration because I got tired of paying the mortgage payment, right? And so property manager picks it up for me in Memphis. I'm in Texas in Houston. And they find a tenant for me. And the next month, they click. It's like, wait a minute, I'm not doing any work. And I'm making four hundred dollars a month now because the the, uh, the rent was four hundred more than the mortgage payment. Okay. And I'm like, man. I was like, man. So this is this is passive income. Like this is this is this is what I really need to be focused on. It, it really does work. And so from there, man, I just, I just wanted to get more aggressive with it. So um, I found a mentor locally. Uh, actually, one of my frat brothers worked for uh, the Homevestors, which is the We Buy Ugly Houses people. Okay. 
So he was a property manager in one of the, the, the hood areas. Um, and he connected me with their contractor that they use for the rehabs in those areas. Okay. A guy named, a guy named Edgar. And Edgar was rehabbing 20, 30 houses for him a month, but he was also an investor. And so, you know, I, I connected with him. He actually became my first mentor. And um, he would he would help me pick the houses. He would do the renovation for me. And I made money and he made money. And so I just continued that relationship. And to this day, I still use Edgar for a lot of my rehab work. Okay. Okay. So, so I mean, how do you get started? I mean, you know, just like, how, how do you pick the houses? I mean, did you go into specific neighborhoods? I mean, what, what, what was your, uh, what was your strategy going into it? And what, what your mentor teach you? All right. So number one, you want to, the neighborhood doesn't really matter. It's all about the deal. Right. So it's like, if you can get some Walmart shoes that sell for $10 in Walmart, you can pick them up for $2. It's still a profit in it. Right. Right. Or you go get some, some Kanye that's for seven fifty, but you can pick them up for four fifty. There's still profit in it. Right. That's a so you, Yeah. So you just have to understand what, you know, what, what, what the equity spread is, which is the equity is the amount owed versus the amount that it's worth. Right. So the, the usual, the standard rule for real estate investing, if you're going to be flipping houses is uh, 70% of what the end value is going to be. Okay. So you want to find something that you can be all in with all your expenses between the purchase and the rehab for 70% of what it's going to be worth when it's done. Um, okay. So, so um, what, what I've been trying to target is deals that are a little bit better than that. So like for my first deal, um, we were able to be about 65 cents on the dollar all in. Okay. So, so thirty thousand to purchase it, thirty-five thousand for the rehab. So that was sixty. We are here live at OTR Solutions HQ. I'm here with my partner, Jonathan. Man, listen, Factor is an integral part of the transportation industry. Why is Factor important? Absolutely, Ramel. In this economy, in this market, cash flow is king. Cash flow is the key to growth. If you have a young trucking company or if you've been in the industry for years and you want to take that business to the next level, we're absolutely a company that can help. So I hope you'll give us a call today. Let us know what we can do to help you out. Get the rest and roll with the best. Let's go. $5,000 invested, but it was worth $100 uh, when it was done. Okay. And yeah, go ahead. No. So where were you at financially at the time? I mean, like, did you come in, come into it with, with, with some money? Did you have to get a loan from somewhere? What, 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 what were you looking like when you first got started? Good question. Good question. So uh, with, with the, the, the type of lending that you use when you're doing those rehabs, it, it comes from other investors who are so successful that they, they just become lenders as well. And so they understand, um, they understand these deals. And so they're willing to lend you a significant amount of the money for the deal and they're called hard money lenders. Okay. Their interest rate is, is really high. So the interest rate is usually 10 to 12% APR. Um, and your goal is to use the money as short term as possible. But what they allow you to do is that they'll fund practically all of the, uh, of the project. So they'll give you usually like 90% of the purchase price and then a hundred percent of the rehab okay. for the project. But you have to be under that 70% threshold. So for me, what I did to come up with that 10% I needed for the purchase price, which was uh, about about $6,000 with the closing costs and everything. I just, um, I had a little bit of savings. I was 23, um, but I had been working for like a year and a half. So I actually borrowed against that 401k mm. to, to get the money to get started. Because what I realized is like, you know, that 7 or 8% that it was making sitting there 
was uh, nowhere near what, what the return would be if I took it out and I invested in, in this real estate uh, mm. investment. Gotcha. So yeah, it was, I, put it, I put it to work to make more money for me versus what it was doing. Got you. So you, 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 you cleaned out your 401k. Um, mm-hmm. So you, that's how you got your first property, right? Right. All right. And, so, and, and, and I, I actually withdraw the money. Like most people, I don't know if people know this, but you can, you can borrow against your own 401k. Okay. Um, so you borrow. And then you, you borrow against it. And then um, every, every paycheck after that, you're kind of, you're paying yourself back with like a 2% interest rate. Right. So, right. so, so you yeah. still work. So you're still working at, at this time. You're still in, at your yeah. job. Right. I didn't quit my corporate job until 2015. I stayed there um, for a few reasons. Um, when it comes to being an entrepreneur, and banks aren't very entrepreneur friendly because what entrepreneurs and investors tend to do is write off a lot of things so that their tax burden is lower. But at, so let's say your business really brought in a hundred grand, but you're able to make it look like on paper you made forty five thousand because you're writing so many things off. But when you go to a bank to get a loan. The bank doesn't care about the revenue that was deposited into your account. They only care about what you report to the IRS every year. Right. So, so if you don't have a W-2 income and you have a business that you're writing a lot of things off, you don't look very attractive to a bank at all to get any type of funding. Okay. So, so the, the benefit of me being able keeping that corporate job was, you know, I still look good on paper for them in case I needed that money or when I was refinancing out of the, um, the hard money. So, you know, that short-term high interest, 10, 12%, once you finish the project, you want to get out of that as quick as possible and you want to refinance into something conventional um, that has a, a you know three or four percent interest rate or five percent interest rate max. So, um, yeah, so that's why I did that like that. But um, 2015, I had just I had built up enough business from real estate to where I had max matched my income that I was making from the corporate job. So it was cool to be double dipping. But I had some some stuff go down at work where, you know, I had a boss that was trying to throw me under the bus for something that wasn't my fault. And it felt really good to be able just to be able to walk away mm-hmm. you know, on, on my own terms. Yeah. Got so, you. Got you. Yeah, I, yeah. I love that. What What did yeah. you apply from your, your, your first deal or what did you learn from your first deal that you applied to your, your next your next couple deals moving forward? Contingencies, 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 because no matter how well you plan out a project like that, there's always going to be an unknown. And there, you always have to have room in your budget um, the flexibility and the expectation that something's going to come up that you don't know about that, that you haven't seen. Could you go um, deeper into that when you say contingencies? Like what, what, what do you mean? Just explain. Okay. That a bit more. Okay. Okay. So a, a contingency is something that you, you build in as a, a buffer between what you think is going to cost and what it will really cost to do the job. So an, an example, you walk a property, everything looks good. You feel like you just have to do cosmetic stuff. You go and you're just going to change out, let's say, like the sinks and the bathrooms and the cabinets. And then when the plumber goes in to replace the sink, he opens the wall and realizes that maybe you got cast iron plumbing in there and, and the, the, the water pipes are rusted. Mm-hmm. Now you have to go in and re- replace all these water pipes. But you didn't see that because the walls were closed up. Right. Or you get in the attic and you get ready to, to wire like some new, let's see, recessed lighting in the house. And then the electrician gets up there and realizes, well, wait a minute, you got this old style of wiring that no longer passes code, so you have to rewire this whole house. Mm. You know, so it's things like that. Um, or you know, I mean, it could be rotten floor joists, it could be termites somewhere that you didn't see. Um, there's a ton of things that can happen. Um, it could be something wrong with the AC system. Um, so it's a lot, and sometimes you'll buy a house, and something may really be at the end of its useful life. So when you walk the house, say the water heater is working. 
Well, by the time you close on it and get halfway through the rehab, the water heater just happened to go out. Right. You know, so those are, those are all things that you you can't really plan. I'm pretty sure the same thing with, with trucking when you get a truck. You know what I mean? Like certain certain parts are, are at the end of their useful life. You don't realize it until you get into the deal. You get the truck on the roads. Right. So same thing with real estate. So you you have you have to plan for uh, extra expenses um, that 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 you you didn't foresee. Well, is it is there an example of one that happened to you in particular that really stands out to you in your journey, like a contingency that you didn't plan for? Ah, uh, yeah, I had a house that. Um, so when when the found when you, when your house is built on bad soils, uh, where where the dirt isn't really compact, the house starts to settle. So that that's what makes houses, you know, crack or you see like cracks in the floor, or the concrete or, or cracks in the side of the brick on a house. Um, so that's foundation issues. And so I had a house where I, I went in and I had the, um, you know, the, I got all the bid work to do the full rehab. I got the bid work to have the foundation leveled. And um, I got the foundation leveled and they gave me a lifetime warranty on the leveling. Um, but what happened was the soils under the house were so bad that even after they leveled it, the house started settling again once the mm. rehab was done. Mm. So, so they, uh, of course, I had a lifetime warranty on the foundation work itself. So they came back and when they leveled the house the second time, all the pipes under the ground started busting because, you know, they're rigid. And so when you move them around so much, they start to crack. Right. So one of them cracked. And they had, so then I had a big water issue and I had um, all kinds of issues out there. So then I had to bust up all of the concrete to go in and redo the plumbing. But that wasn't a part of that warranty. Right. You know, they, only, they only warranted the warranty of, of the foundation itself. They had Not, their own. They had their own contingencies, huh? <laughs> exactly exactly yeah yeah exactly but gotcha. yeah, that was a big one for me man that was a big one for me and i'll never forget that one how much did that end up costing you remember an extra eighty five hundred dollars on a but on a budget that was supposed to be thirty five thousand so it went, it went way over budget damn yeah. damn okay okay what 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 are yeah. some of the traits that um uh, uh an investor needs to have some somebody who wants to get into in, in, into real estate um what type of person do you need to be in order to start investing or is it for anyone it's, I mean, it's for anyone, but you have to understand what your risk tolerance is, right? So flipping is something that you have to have a high risk tolerance for because you're taking on a lot of debt. Um, it, it, it's it's a lot of unknown variables in that equation, and it can be stressful. Whereas um, somebody that just may want to have extra cash flow um, may want to just buy new construction to rent it out. Or buy houses that have already been rehabbed to rent them out. So of course your your return is going to be lower on something like that. You're not going to be making the twenty thirty thousand dollars every two or three months, but you, you you can build wealth that way slowly by accumulating more assets that have that passive income. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So I mean, it, it really depends on you know what your goals are personally. There's a lot of ways to get into it. Have you ever lost money on a deal? Oh yeah, lost money on a lot of deals, um, but not. By, by trying to be too creative, by not using the guidance of mentors, trying to figure things out on my own. Um, I, I made a mistake one time of buying a house from a, 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 a homeowner's association foreclosure sale, um, which is like the HOA. So, you know, HOAs can file liens against properties and all that other kind of stuff. And um, then, you know, then they'll try to sell that at a foreclosure auction, just like, uh, like a bank would sell at a foreclosure auction. I went and bought one, not realizing that there was still a mortgage in place on that property mm. and that, that mortgage superseded that uh, HOA. So the, uh, the mortgage company went in and, uh, and basically in a way they avoided the foreclosure sale, but I'd already given the HOA my money. 
Mm. So I lost the property and lost the money. Wow. Yeah, and that and I and I thought that I was doing something tremendously great because I was going to tell my mentor, look what I did. I bought this eight <laughs> $8,000 house for $12,000. And had I told him that, he would have told me to stop and run the other direction because that wasn't a good idea. Wow. You know, wow. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, so, so in 2015, you, you quit your job, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you fire your boss. So at that point, what, what is your business model? How are you going to make money for yourself? Is it flipping? Are you investing long-term buying and holding? What's your strategy? Yeah. So I was, I was still doing a few flips, but in 2013, I was actually able to buy a whole block of property. Like before it was a trendy thing. Okay. Hold go through phrase. We got to get back yeah. to that. Talk to yeah. me about that. How we get into yeah. that. Yeah, so 2013, um, you know, I was looking, I was trying to find ways to get into bigger investments. And what I realized was that um, with my corporate job and all that kind of stuff, I would not be able to get that deal that I wanted um, by asking a bank to fund something for me because I just didn't have the credibility. I didn't have the experience. I didn't have the income for them to feel comfortable loaning me a million dollars for something, right? So I started doing research and I realized that there's ways where you can get sellers to finance the sale of their properties to you. So it's owner financing, right? So you give them a down payment and then you make payments to them. And usually they have to already own their property free and clear for that okay. to work. Okay. And so so I, I, I happened to fall in, I happened to find one of those deals where uh, th- this guy was the heir of an entire block of property from his father. And his father owned like 20 blocks over here in Fifth Ward of Houston, Texas. Oh, wow. And so this this one happened to be like right on the freeway views of downtown. It had a grocery store on it, it had like four houses on it. Um, and so I was able to negotiate a purchase with him owner finance. So gave him 10% down. I didn't, I noticed it's crazy for where you at, but to buy a whole block of property for 500 grand. Wow. Is what, <laughs> is wow. what I did here. Yeah. I mean, and, but people thought I was crazy even paying that much for it because the local market, um, it, it, I should have only been offering him about 350 for it. Okay. But I knew but I knew that since it's owner finance, it's not like I'm paying him all the money up front, right? Right. And I knew that it was a 30-year mortgage. So I said, well, hell, by the time I pay this off, this will definitely be worth way more than the $500,000 i am agreeing to pay him for it. So it made sense. Got um, you. Why, why, did he, why did he want to get rid of the property? Was, was he in the distressed situation? Like, what, what happened? Yeah, just a tired landlord, man. Just an older guy. He was like 72 years old. Okay. Um, and you know that's you know that's a myth that a lot of us talk about, and I always try to dispel that myth. People think that once you start buying a bunch of rental properties, you have a bunch of real estate, you're creating a generational legacy, a generational wealth, and you're really not. You you're, you create financial freedom for yourself, but if you don't instill the uh, the knowledge of what to do with money and how to make money work in your children um, or or the next generation, you know they're gonna do exactly what this guy did. He mm. inherited all all of this and just sold it. You know? mm. And it had it run down, you know, so it, it, didn't, it didn't create generational wealth for him. Now, um, now were these properties, um, were they rented out or what, what were they just? Uh, uh, good question. Yeah. Good question. So they were, so they were, they were rented out. But a lot of them were run down. Uh, some of the tenants weren't really paying, um, but it was a lot of drug infestation. There was a lot of prostitution like in this area. Um, and so when I, when I got the property, I basically cleaned it up. Okay. Uh, got rid of all of them. But instead of spending a lot of money on rehab, what I did was, I found a void in the in the, the the housing market, which was felons. So people that get out of prison, it's very hard for them to find anywhere to live. So mm. what I did was I did single room occupancy for them. So I made it affordable for them, all bills paid. So I took a house that was three or four bedrooms 
where I could have only rented it for seven fifty. Now I'm renting it out each room for three fifty. Mm. So I basically doubled the revenue without having to upgrade anything in the properties. And so most of these guys, they were all in prison for non-violent offenses. So they've been in prison ten years plus. Most of them, they had now had trades. So I had carpenters, I had electricians, I had plumbers. You know, so anything went wrong, I just bought materials and they would fix it. So that even cut wow. down on my, on my maintenance costs. Wow. They were just happy that. They were just happy to have somewhere to live because no no one would take them and they violated their parole if they did not have a did not have a steady job and they did not have a, a, a steady place to live. So it now, became a win win. Now now who who gave you that idea? Where'd that idea? Because that's genius right there. Who gave you that idea? <laughs> uh, wh- 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 how did you figure that whole thing out to, to to work it that way? Did you see somebody else do that, or wh- where'd that come from? You know what? I got it from the idea of watching how people did veteran housing, and I actually had tried to do veteran housing before. But it's really hard because a lot of them really have PTSD and they have a lot of mental health issues. Okay. Um, and so I was like, well, what other demographic of people is kind of similar to them that uh, will, will work? And so um, I just, you know, I had a friend that was a parole officer and he told me how hard it was for a lot of them to get places to live. So that's how I figured it out. So I started with one of the little houses on the backside of the property and it worked so well that the parole office actually started referring people to us. We got you. Know, you. Yeah. Yeah. So you had a direct connect right into the prisons and they were just sending yeah. them right right from prison right to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that's, that's awesome, man. So how many properties yeah. did you have on the block? It was it was five properties. So it was four houses and then there was a duplex, believe it or not, above the grocery store where the owner used to live. Okay. So we, so we I had everything leased out like that. Okay. Yeah, and then, that, and and how long did it take you to get to full occupancy? Um Within the first eight months, we got the full occupancy. Okay. Okay. And yeah. how was how was the retention? Like, I mean, did the guys stay there? Like, was it easy? Yeah. How did that work out? Yeah. Um, I, I, we have turnover every now and then with the ones that would leave and go out of town or something. But for the most part, like I said, it was so hard for them to find housing. Once they moved in, they stayed. I mean, unless some of them we'd have to evict, like the ones that relapsed and went back into drugs or something like that or started keeping the wrong company, you know, we, we'd have to get rid of them. But we never went below eighty percent occupancy, dope. so it was it was great cash flow uh, every month. Okay, dope. So so I'm assuming once you did that, that kind of kind of set you up for 2015 when you actually mm-hmm. quit your job because now you have a model that that works. You know what I'm saying? Right. So did you did you try to go and duplicate this model somewhere else? I didn't. Um, actually, what, what I what I started focusing on after that was I noticed that. Th- there was new construction going on in the neighborhood. And I knew that the property that I had, even when I bought it, I knew eventually it was going to be prime real estate because of the location and the proximity to downtown and redevelopment in Houston was kind of going counterclockwise around downtown. And this was like the last quadrant that was available. Okay. That had uh, easy freeway access and like you three or four minutes from everything downtown, like literally four minutes from what Astros play and where the Rockets play. Okay. Um, yeah. So at that point, my focus kind of shifted out. out um, I had always had a, 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 a desire to want to try to counter that gentrification narrative in some way. And so when I saw new construction going up in the neighborhood, I figured, okay, this is an opportunity. This neighborhood's about to change. Um, this is a way for me to not not fight gentrification, but but maybe create a blueprint for how we can participate in it and um, and make neighborhoods better, make communities better, bring people that look like us with good income back into the neighborhood and let mm. them also benefit from the home value appreciation. Mm. So, yeah. So that's what I did, man. I started I started working on that. I brought on. Um, I, 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 let me back up. I was still flipping houses, too. OK. So so I was taking some of the revenue from that 
and using that to start doing my planning for the develop the redevelopment side of, of the project. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, but yeah, at that time I was able to, uh, to leave, leave the corporate job between the flipping and the revenue from the property. From the properties. Okay. So yeah. now you're looking into investing into um, new construction now. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. Uh-huh. So, so talk to me a little bit about that. Is what's the difference between investing in new construction and investing in, uh, you know, and, and, and flipping? What, what what's the difference? It's a huge difference. Um, the, it's it's like um, you know, when you're flipping, you're buying a house that's already existing. It's already been through the permit process. It's already acknowledged by the city as as a, as a dwelling, and all you have to do is go in and pull permits to renovate things, to change things. So you can be in and out of that project in two months, right? If, if you buy something where you flip it in three weeks and you can list it on the market and it sells in a week, you can be closing within the next month, right? So it's quick term. Whereas with new construction, there's a longer lead time. So you have to invest money up front. You have to go through all these plans and permits. So you have to start construction. Um, and it, it can take you up to nine months just, just to get through that phase and you list it for sale. So it's 10 months. Um, and then what I was doing was a little bit, probably a little bit aggressive, a little bit too aggressive for my first project. Okay. I actually became, I actually, I actually put myself in the position of being a developer on the first project. So not just buying a vacant lot and building on it, but actually coming up with the site plan for an entire block and getting all of that approved first and then going through that construction process. So it's like um, almost a year and a half, two years before you'll start seeing any revenue come back in. Yeah, and you have to sell. You have to sell a few houses before you really see the profit because the first few you're really just recouping your expenses. Mm. On the project. So it's like a yeah. long, like it's a long term flip. Basically, it's still a flip, it's a, it's but it's a, a long term flip. Yeah, and and, and that is, that's exactly what I had to evaluate personally. I was like, well, if I keep flipping and I don't take this risk and try to move on to this bigger level, um, am, am I missing any money? And so I was doing probably three to four flips a year, um, but on this project site, I, I'm building 14 townhomes. So I did the math and I was like, well, it's going to take me, you know, almost two years to be able to sell all these houses. But in the end, I'll still be I'll still end up making more than I would have on the same pace as I was with with the flipping. Mm. You know, so, yeah. So it's just a long term pace and it, it puts you in a bigger arena. You know, there's not there's a lot of us that do fix and flip. There's not a lot of us that are that, are, that can literally say we're developers. You know? Got you. Got you. So when you um when you. Uh, you, when you're becoming a, a developer, because like that's like you said, that's like a whole nother level. Um, mm-hmm. what, what 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 does that take? I mean, is there anything you have to licensing? Is there anything you have to do with the with the city planning? Like, how does that work when when you're dealing with new construction and you're developing? So, uh, if you want to try and do it yourself, I mean, it would take a long time to get all certifications. But what I what I'm a big proponent of leveraging other people. Okay, and so. So, uh, man, what I did, I, just, I built a team around me of experts. I, I, uh, I hired a consultant who was a, a, a builder and developer who had been in the game for about 12 years. He's a, a, a black guy that actually had a similar background to me. He was a civil engineer, started his construction company in like 1999. And, uh, but he had grown his business to the point where he's building over 300 houses a year. Mm. Right. So I had to pay him 10 grand to be my consultant. And whether my project got off the ground or not. Um, you know, that was 10, 10 grand. That was an investment, right. That was, that was an investment. I tell people all the time, you know, sometimes the, the, you, you may feel like you get sticker shock when somebody tells you how much they're charging for the information. But when you really calculate what, how much time you would lose and how much money you could possibly lose if you try to figure it out on your own, mm. you always come, you always come out better just paying for the information up front. Mm. Um, 
So that's what I did. So he actually he, he actually connected me with everybody I needed from the people that take your survey and they say, okay, you have to resubdivide this property up to, to build these different houses on the different lots. That's called replatting. So everything from that phase to coming up with, with the drainage plan for the block because the city wants to understand where is all this water going to be displaced? You know, which sewer lines is it going into? Um, to what's the density of the houses? How much parking is going to be needed for these houses? Um, that whole process. And then the actual vertical construction. So actually looking at what you're building on the property. Um, yeah, you need, you need it's, a, it's, it's engineers, it's architects, um, it's consultants in, in many different roles that you need for that. So, yeah, I just leveraged somebody else's expertise trying to put all the pieces together on my own. Bro. It took forever. What, what, what gave you the confidence to, 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 to take on such a big, huge project, man? I mean, because man, my, always, go ahead. Yeah, I've always been a big risk taker. And I, and I always, not, at this point, I've, I figured it out that if you can find somebody that's doing it, then your confidence doesn't have to be in yourself. You, you can lean on the expertise of somebody else as long as you make it mutually beneficial so that they feel like they have an inherent interest in, uh, in making sure you're successful. So by me going to him, this $10,000 wasn't a lot. He was doing 300 houses a year. Right. But he knew that, he knew that if, if he helped me be successful, he would get, he would get the, the construction for all 14 of the property, which is a significant mm. project. Gotcha. You know? Yeah, and gotcha. same thing with everybody else that was involved. You know, they saw what I was doing, and you know, I mean, they saw that I had already been a big risk taker to start flipping houses at twenty three. Yeah, you know, uh, so you know, I mean, and, and you know, it's it's a people game, man. I, no matter no matter what business you're in, you're always going to be selling, if nothing less, you're selling yourself, right? And so you always got to you know present yourself in a position of confidence where people buy into what you're doing and what your vision is. Right. So that's right. really that's really that's really what it was. Yeah. For sure. All right. Cool. So what what was your first development again? You said townhomes. You did. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm still I'm actually still working on you're that. Still working now. on that now. Okay. Yeah. So so, so where phase, where are you at? We'll get talk to the first phase. I'm listening. Yes. Yeah, so, so the first phase is complete. So what I had to do was basically, um, like I said, so the same block of property I was talking about earlier, um, it's in a zip code where there was no new construction at all. Um, so I tried to go to a couple of banks to get the vertical funding. So usually the way development projects works, you have to come out of pocket for all of what they call the flat work, which is the horizontal planning for um, for like, uh, like I said, the drainage stuff, the, the, the resubdividing of the property, uh, all of the actual architectural plan. And then once you get all that done and you, you can get that through permitting, then you usually go to a bank and the bank will give you money to go vertical with the project to actually start building the buildings, right? Okay. Um, but in this case, since there was no new construction over there, the banks weren't comfortable. They they were saying, you know, we don't know what this is actually going to sell for. You, you're giving us your projection, but there's no new construction in the zip code that has sold. So mm. I literally, I literally was told no by 23 different banking institutions. Oh man, wow, yeah. 23 banking—that's crazy, bro. 23, 23, 23, and a couple of them were hard money lenders. And I finally found a hard money lender um, out of Austin, Texas, that they actually had experience um, in gentrifying areas and they had actually done a project like this on their own so they understood where i was going with it and so they actually funded me to, to build the first three units and the reason why i wanted to do three is because that's what you need for a good appraisal um, okay. whenever 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 you whenever you buy a property um and, and appraiser usually pulls the, mo- the the three most like kind properties within a very close proximity to where you're buying to understand what the average market value is or what people are willing to pay for a property in that area and what a bank is willing to fund that area. Right. So comparables. I had to, I, yeah, my, yeah, comparables, yeah, comps. So they call them comps for short. 
So yeah. I had to set three comp I had to set three comps. So that's what I did. So I built my first three. Um and the whole time I'm building them, I'm really just using my social media influence um to let people know that this market is gentrifying. This is historically black. This is an opportunity for us to participate in gentrification in a positive way. Um and it, it worked. So I like I was able to close out my first three sales. Um so I went from you know, an uh, area where there's no new construction to selling three houses for almost three hundred thousand dollars a piece, or like two seventy nine or two eighty five a piece. Wow! Um, so I set my own comparable sales, so it went from nothing to almost a million dollars in sales uh, last year. Now, how, how do you how do you set your own com- comparables? Because aren't they aren't they looking at um, you know the other property in the area? How how do you set your yeah. own price? Yeah. So what I did was I pulled what was what was in close proximity. So in like 2015, another builder started building deeper in Fifth Ward, but it was, you know, you, you had to you had to go into the community. So you, you had to drive four or five minutes down these streets in this neighborhood to get to these houses that were selling for like 245, 250. Okay. Okay. And so for, for me, it's like, well, you know, that 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 expl- that 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 tells me that if somebody is willing to go into a, a neighborhood and spend 250, but have to traverse the neighborhood significantly to get to their house. Um, and a lot of these were selling them without even him listing them, like on the internet. People were buying them as they were under construction. I, I figured that I, I could charge a premium for mine because where I'm at is right on the freeway. Okay. And it has and it has views of downtown. Um, so I figured I could charge a premium for it. And um, yeah, I just I just made sure my finishes were nice. I made sure that I studied what everybody was looking for in that market. So I, I had like seven or eight different realtors that represent buyers come to me and I, and I asked them to give me all of the, the characteristics of houses that their buyers were looking for, but they were frustrated that they could not find all in one house. Mm. So things like things like inside the, inside the city of Houston, it's hard to find anything with the backyard. So I made sure I had backyards. Uh, a lot of them don't have individual driveways. So I made sure I had individual driveways. Um, the trend had been three and four stories, but a lot of people were tired of going up and down stairs. So I made sure I did my two stories. Mm. Um, very, very open layouts, very big bathrooms, b- big walk-in closets. So I made sure I hit on all of the key points so that when an appraiser came in to look at it, he could say, I, I can see where the value is above the- those other ones that were selling for 250 Got so you. That's what we did. Yeah. That's dope. That's yeah. dope. What What are some of the yeah. early, the early signs of gentrification for somebody who wants to get in, in, in earlier? Yeah. What are some of the mm-hmm. things that you'll start seeing or the things you should be looking for? So number one, whenever a city or municipality wants a developer to start coming to an area, they're going to start improving the infrastructure. So look for an area where they're redoing all the sidewalks, where they're putting up new streetlights, where they're repaving the roads. Um, and if you want to go further than that, you can go to city, the, the city planning department. So it's usually called like urban development or something like that. Each city has a different name to it. It could be, it could be planning and urban development okay. on the website. But they always have five to 10 year plans for the city. And so they're, they're literally telling you where, where the next areas of revitalization are that they're targeting. And then you also want to talk to realtors that are very active because they'll know where developers are planning their next projects. Um, you can also make connections with people that work in the permit office because they know everything before everybody else. Because anytime a developer gets ready to do a project, they have to submit the plans, mm. right? So before the plans even even get approved, uh, the the people in that department know what's been submitted and what big what big contractors and construction companies or developers are planning to do things in certain areas. So you know you can use a combination of those and also 
just news news uh, articles about what's coming to the area, you know. Mm. Um, so all those factors let you know that you know you, you're gonna you're gonna follow the success trail of the big boys. You know, it's like it's like um, CVS always moving in after Walgreens decides where they're going, or or Burger King always moving in after McDonald's decides where they're going. You know, so it's it's the same model. Just just follow where you see things happening at, and um, try to stay close to that. Got you, got you, got you. Okay, cool. So um now you you have this buy back the block mantra, right? Which yeah. like you said, you would you would do it before it became sexy and everybody was talking about it, right? You were living it for real. Um to, to, and you and you went into look looked into crowdfunding, right? Yeah, yeah. Talk to me a little uh-huh. bit about that. Okay, so um and when it comes to uh investment pools. Um, up until 2009, 2010, when Barack Obama implemented what's called the Jobs Act, which allows um, any and everyday citizens to be able to pool their money to invest in, in uh, big, big acquisitions or, or big purchases, you had to be accredited to put your money into these types of opportunities, which means you had to have a net worth of a million dollars or you had to have an income of over $200,000 for the past two years to even be able to say, I want to invest in a project and put, put your money in. Well, this new tier of crowdfunding was created back then, but it, it allows anybody to invest up to $10,000 if they're not accredited and up to $25,000 if you are accredited. Um, so what that does is that opens up opportunities that we, we never had, never never were able to even think about getting into before, right? So um, there's a lady uh, out of Denver named Lynn who has, she's probably the only female black owner of a platform that's SEC regulated for this new tier of crowdfunding. Okay. Um, Bytheblock.com is our website. And we had been talking uh, prior to this current project um, that I, that I actually used the crowdfunding for. We had several conversations about my new construction project that we were talking about just now, but I just didn't feel comfortable pooling people's capital. And I had not, like I said, I had not sold any of those houses yet. I didn't know that I was going to set those comps. I didn't know that the appraiser was going to come back favorable. So I didn't want to risk anybody's money on anything like that. Mm. So, I, so I said, I'm going to wait until I find the right project. And um, what happened was one of my students um, that uh, that uh, I'm, I was teaching about wholesaling, and which is going out and finding distressed sellers or people that want to sell and get from under property less than market value. Um, one of them actually found a lead of a landlord that owned an entire portfolio of rental properties in the same neighborhood uh, and really close to where the big new development project was going to happen. So uh, it's like 0.75 miles away from this big 150 acre mixed use development that's coming in 2023. Okay. Um, and uh, it, so there was, there was already going to be inherent value appreciation in that property because it was so close to this big project. Not only that, but it had um, 18 houses and like 16 of them have had long-term tenants. Okay. So tenants had, some of them have been there literally 20 years. So it's, it's bringing in uh, almost $13,000 a month in, in, uh, in rents every month. And the tenants pay all their own utilities. There's not a lot of upkeep or a lot of maintenance or repairs needed to the property. So it was a good solid project that I said, this could be a good crowdfund because uh, when we close on it from day one, it's producing revenue and there's okay. no lead time. It's not like okay. me having to build something and wait for a property. It's already got cash flow coming in there. So it's already 
what they, in the in the real estate world they call that performing. It's already a performing asset. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so so what I was able to do with that one was um I actually this was another deal where they owned the property free and clear. So I didn't have to use a bank on this one either. So I negotiated a, a little bit of a different structure. They wanted fifty percent of the purchase price up front, which was the purchase price was one point two five million. Um so I had to uh, bring six hundred thousand to closing and then I negotiated with them uh, a a two year payoff, but with no payments in the middle. Okay. So six hundred thousand dollars at closing, and then six hundred and fifty thousand in two years. In two years, okay. In two years. So, uh, so my goal was then to raise the six hundred to close it, and now we're capturing that that twelve thousand, thirteen thousand dollars a month in cash flow right now. Um, and there's commercial space there too. So there's a uh, a barbecue restaurant and a vacant space that we're going to bring a coffee shop into, right? So for me, this, this was an opportunity to take the value, the total value of the property um, and take a, a, a portion of it and do just like you do with a, with a company that's going to go uh, with an IPO, you know, on the stock exchange. Just take take it up and break it down into little bitty ownership shares and sell those shares to investors that otherwise wouldn't be able to participate in an opportunity like this. Mm. So, so it's pretty cool. I mean, what it's doing is it's setting a blueprint where you know, in these gentrifying areas, we can do like I'm doing some new construction, bringing, you know, higher incomes back to the community at the same time, protect, protecting long term residents by buying the house that they live in from landlords that would otherwise sell them off to somebody else who was going to have a completely different use for that land. You know, their, their goal is probably going to be buy it, either rent it, I mean, renovate it and double the rents and displace all these people. Or buy it and just tear it down and build some high end stuff. Right, right. Um, so, and that's usually the, the typical narrative during gentrification. So, what this does is it, it creates a blueprint for how we can collectively pool money. And I'm letting people invest as little as $250 up to $10,000. And now they can actually say that they own a piece of this. They're actually real estate investors. Um, and, and we are creating a solution to uh, maintain control of these neighborhoods and these narratives. and look out for existing residents. Got you. And what are the, um, the, like the dividends on that investment once you, when you invest? All right. Good question. So number one, I, I tell people like the most important thing about this is you are, you are actually buying a portion of real estate that's in a market where the value is going to go up significantly. So your biggest return on your investment is the share value because as the property value goes up, the share value goes up. So the property goes up 10%. That's what your share value goes up. Right. And I'm, projecting if this if this is anywhere close to any other area of Houston that's gone through this revitalization over the next five to seven years the prop the property value is gonna double easily. So share value is going to double. Okay. On top of that, what what I'm doing is I'm taking um forty percent of the net profit. So after we pay all the bills every year, the taxes, insurance, operating expenses, property management, taking forty percent of that net profit and dividing that up and distributing that out to all the shareholders. Okay. So it's going to be twice twice a year. So it, it will pay a dividend just like a stock. Um, so for every $50 that you invest in shares, you probably get like two or $3 back out of that, which is okay. typical, which is still, it's still on some stocks. That's even, that's still a pretty high dividend. Um, but you, you know, it, and it, but it's like, it, it hedges the risk of buying a regular stock because if a company's value goes to zero for some reason, that company goes bankrupt, it's gone. Well, you actually, your, your your interest is actually your investment is actually secured here because this is actual real estate. 
Right. You know, the real estate is not going to disappear. It's going to be there and it's going to have value. Got so, you. Got you. Dope. Yeah. And, and what has been the response to this offering? Man, it's been crazy. You know, the first three days of the, the crowdfund, I raised 110000 from investors. Damn, uh, 110 the first three days? Uh, and this was right after this was right after Black Friday, right before Christmas, man. So it's a time when everybody's already spent a lot of their money. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And and, uh, and how'd you get the word? And how'd you get the word out? Man, just social media, just social media marketing, really. Damn. Um, I mean, I, I already had a strong uh, following on my social media because I, you know, I, I'm I'm a big proponent of just teaching other people the game and, and uh, giving away free information. So right, I, I've had I had a strong network there, uh, followers who had been asking me how they could invest with me but a lot of them just didn't have a big chunk of money like ten twenty thousand dollars to do a flip right so you know this was their opportunity to finally to you know invest in something and become a real estate investor you know and Got so you. yes so at a date uh it's a the, the crowdfund is about two hundred and sixty thousand in and about four hundred and fifty five investors so far um so i'm gonna keep it going um because remember the total i had to bring the closing was uh, six hundred thousand so right yes so um, I, I I had about two twenty from the crowdfund, and I you know I had a, a private lender to give me a, basically a bridge loan for the gap to fill in the gap. So I'm going to continue to crowdfund and pay his um, his loan off, you know. And so the goal is to have 100% ownership with no debt on it, besides what the, what we're paying the seller in, in two years. Got you, got you, got you. So, are the majority of your investors are in the two hundred and fifty range, or are they bigger? Like, what do you see the majority of people investing? Uh, yeah, I would say probably sixty percent of the investors were people that really just put in a two hundred and fifty. Okay, and then the other forty percent, it ranges from five hundred to ten thousand. Okay, and I, and I do have some people that are basically buying shares every month. So the minimum purchase is two hundred and fifty, but they're buying like two hundred and fifty a month continuously. And two fifty gets gets you how much shares? What's the what's five, the five shares? Five okay, fifty dollars shares. Yeah, I got people that are buying them for their kids that, that plan to stay in it long term. You know, so it's pretty cool. This is dope, man. This is dope. I, yeah. I, I I love it. What made you think about crowdfunding? Um, I, you know, I I was just I've always been a, a proponent of or a fan of creative financing structures, and I knew that you know, like the big boys do syndications all the time to buy right. big real estate assets. And so this was a way for us to, uh, you know, I, I was really focused on finding creative solutions to protect our neighborhoods um, during gentrification. And so this is like a mini syndication. Mm-hmm. Um, and cr- I just wanted to create that blueprint with this project and create something that could be duplicated in other markets the same way. Got you. So people can still get involved in this right now. And where, where would they go to, yeah. to get involved with, with, with this investment? Yeah, you literally go to buytheblock.com um, and it's going to be the Fifth Ward Lions Avenue project. Um, you'll see it. it it's uh, it's, it's going to be the the campaign that has the highest gross. I mean, it has an image of the property with the downtown in the background. It's pretty cool. Okay. So yeah, yeah, it's right there. Yeah. Okay. Are you, you if you go on my social media too, uh, underscore I N V S T R. Um, when you click the link in my bio, you know you you can get to it directly from there. Got you. What 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 do you enjoy most about uh, doing what you do, man? What 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 what's the most enjoyable part about it for you? Man, I enjoy being a problem solver more than anything. Um, I, you know, it's not really about money or getting rich because the, most of the people that I know that are, you know, extremely well off or extremely content, they stop focusing on money and they, they just focus on solving problems and something they were passionate about. Right. And so that's 
And that, that's what I enjoy most. And I enjoy like putting other people in position to create other streams of income. You know, things that we aren't really taught in school, but you know, everything that I was frustrated about that first year out of college, I, it gives me great gratitude to know that I can feed that to people now. Because I had to bump my head to find, you know, the answers. And for me to be able to freely give that information away is uh, very rewarding, you know. Got you. Where, where do you see your business in the next three to five years? Uh, commercial development. That's my goal. So I'm going to do one more phase of this residential townhouse construction um, and maybe buy a couple more of these, like, rental portfolios like we did. And then the goal is to, to, to switch to bigger uh, office building type mixed-use developments where it's, like, retail office buildings and, and residential. Um, Would you still look to use the same type of crowdfunding model to do that as well? Definitely. Definitely. So some, something that's really good is like that, uh, you know, the limit right now is 1 million, but it's about to go up to $5 million for these crowdfunds. So um, there, there will be opportunities to do bigger projects. And I think a lot of people were watching this one to see how it went. Um, like I said, the people that invested in the very beginning, you know, they just really believed in me. Uh, uh, I had a lot of people that were watching and they were asking the question of what happens if you don't close on the project? You know, how do we get money back? You know, um, what happens if the cash flow isn't really there? Well, I've, I've, I've proven that all that stuff is uh, is not a factor because we closed on it and the cash flow is there now. So I, I feel like it's going to be a lot more people that are investing. And, you know, once you have a proven concept, it, uh, more people are apt to want to get on board with it, you know? For sure. Do, do, do you feel yeah. pressure? Do you, do you feel a lot of pressure on you with, with <laughs> all these people's, you know, you, you, you basically a uh, uh, um, fiduciary of all these people's money. Like, did, is that is that a lot of pressure? The, 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 I think the pressure came with making sure that I, I structured the deal correctly. OK. Um, and at this point, that is really not because I know that um, if I had to pay everybody off, I, I, now the, the project is in the position where I can go to the bank and get refinanced and i would take just basically take a loan against the property and then i could use the the the, the proceeds from the loan to pay off all the shareholders you know okay um, and it has and it has more than enough cash flow right now to cover the dividend so it's this one this one is probably i, I sleep i sleep well at night knowing <laughs> about this investment most other ones you know yeah got you got you got yeah. you well i i love what you're doing man it's it's, it's extremely creative extremely innovative um, extremely gutsy, you know what I mean? Because you, <laughs> like just listening to your whole story, it's like, you know, you don't, you, you, you have the background from, you know, what you learned in flipping, but it's like you, you undertook yeah. something that was, was big, man. And you, you just dream big and you, you go hard. So I respect that a lot, man. Yeah. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, man. For Somebody's sure. got to take the risk. So I figured out <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. That's for sure. Yeah. All right, man. Well, listen, we, we, we're going to start kind of wrapping the show. Um, I always like to just have my guests, um, you know, give my audience like a final thought or a final jewel and then just make mm-hmm. sure, you know, everybody knows where they could connect with you um, and, 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 and reach out to you on social media or, or you know, website, wh- whatever, what have you. So, so go okay. ahead. F- final thought, final jewel. Let's start with that. I would say final thought, final juice. So a lot of a lot of people, your followers may be in a different industry, but I would say that no matter what you're trying to do, and no matter where you're trying to go, just remember that you got to have the success triangle, three parts of the triangle. Uh, number one is you got to have somebody with the knowledge, um, you got to have somebody with the money, and you got to have somebody with the opportunity. So figure out where you fit in. If you have the money, make sure you go out and find the knowledge um, or or the opportunity, um, and bring that that third piece together. Um, don't focus so much on trying to get all three yourself. I think that's what a lot of us get hung up um, and you, you lose time and you lose opportunities that will pass you by because you, you, 
you're trying to figure it out on your own. Um, and like I said, that applies to any, anything you're trying to pursue in life. Um, and then if you want to follow me, the, you can go to my website, uh, chrissenegal.com, really simple. If you want uh, to learn about real estate um, and take online membership, I have, I have an online membership course uh, at learnfromchris.com. Learnfromchris.com, really simple. And of course, just follow me on uh, Instagram. That's my main platform. It's underscore I-N-V-S-T-R, underscore I-N-V-S-T-R. And um, I'm, I'm always, you know, trying to sow seeds and uh, anything real estate and entrepreneurship related on there. So, so. All right, man. Listen, thank you so much for your time, man, and sharing all this, you know, real estate investment knowledge. Um, because, man, we, we, you know, we in the truck in here, but we also want to be able to um, let our money grow for us, man. I know a lot of people are into real estate, and um, I appreciate all the value that you brought to us today, man. Thank you so much. No problem, bro. I appreciate the invite. All right, man. Take care of yourself. Be safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon, man. If you like what you heard, it's only going to get better. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a comment. Let us know what you want to learn or hear more about. Till next time, love is love. Truck and hustle.